as we continue to navigate kind of the COVID-19 rules as we gather for worship. Um, Last week, Pastor Dana and myself, Tyler, Winston, and the whole crew uh, spent some time thinking through what does kind of in-person gathering look like when we can't sing together as a congregation. So in the coming weeks, there's going to be a variety of, of things that we do together, which is still very much part of our worship as we gather and celebrate who Christ is in our life. Uh, we recognize for you at home, you can sing your face off, and we encourage you to do that. And as we kind of walk through the next several Sunday mornings together, there's going to be different things that we do for worship. Uh, we've got some incredibly talented people that are gifted in theater, and they're going to be doing some dramatic presentations of scripture. There's different activities that we're going to be doing at our tables in the coming weeks as we kind of have some miniature Bible studies of sorts, kind of through our phone or through a good old-fashioned Bible itself, kind of through our table and kind of working through the book of Judges. And we're just trying to think through creatively how we might create spaces for us to worship together, both online and here in person, as we don't want to just sing four or five songs and then you kind of watch the team. We know that there's a lot of stuff that we can do kind of in our minds as we focus on those lyrics, but just as we kind of walk through the next several weeks together, we would encourage you to participate in whatever we're inviting you to do as it reflects a space of worship as we direct our hearts and minds towards the living king. So with that being said, um, this morning we're having more of like four miniature devotionals, and in between each devotional we're going to ask you to be doing something uh, to think about what we just talked about or be praying through a particular thing. And this morning, this, this, this afternoon, sorry, this first devotional is really going to be talking about a particular cycle. Um, you've heard it in the bumper now a couple times. Uh, in our um, preaching the last couple weeks, we've, we've referenced a particular cycle in the book of Judges. And if you've been reading along with us, in Judges chapter 2, verse 6, Right away, there's a bit of a, a bit of a conundrum, if you will, and it's, it's not on the screen, but in 2.6, there's this moment when it reads that after Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, well, if you read chapter 1, it says, well, after the death of Joshua. So in chapter 1, Joshua is dead, but now in chapter 2, Joshua is dismissing the Israelites, and this is a bit of a Bible kind of study kind of trick or lesson, if you will, just to get us started. Some books of the Bible actually have two introductions woven into the beginning chapters of that particular book. Judges is one of those particular books. Last week was the intro one, so to speak, which was a very detailed kind of boots on the ground type of introduction into the book of Judges where it was describing very specific people doing very specific things who was doing what, where, when, and so on and so forth. In this week, it's kind of the intro to into the book of Judges. It's very broad stroke. It's looking down from kind of 50,000 feet, describing what was going on in these giant sweeping statements. But make no mistake, it's the exact same story. We know it's the same story because a little later on in chapter 3, they both pick up in the exact same spot. This same language emerges where it begins to describe this cycle woven into the book of Judges. Biblical writers often use this technique as they kind of work their way into the material that they're going to be addressing. Genesis is another book where there are two introductions, so to speak. If you have some time, you could read about it in Genesis chapter 1 through 2.4 and then from 2.5 on to chapter 2.25. It's that same space where there's two introductions. One is very specific and one is very broad, but it's describing the same thing unfolding at the same time. So with this in mind, we want to show you this cycle 
in our first kind of devotional for this afternoon. And this is on the screen. And this is kind of the, the language that's right there in chapter 2, verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who would save them out of the hand of raiders. You will see this phrase over and over and over again all the way through the book of Judges. And we have alluded to it this morning. We're going to clearly speak to it. And we're going to, this next slide on the screen, this is how it kind of works itself out. And you can see this kind of at length from verses 11 through 19 in the book of Judges chapter 2. There's this moment where Israel disobeys. God judges Israel for their disobedience. Israel cries out for help. God is merciful and sends another judge. Salvation comes to Israel, and then that judge dies. And like those old choruses from years ago, it's like repeat. Repeat that same chorus. Repeat that same thing over and over and over and over again. This is the cycle that you will see all the way through the book of Judges, but it's clearly visible here in Judges chapter 2. This cycle found in the book of Judges speaks to a very sinister reality that's going on inside of the people's lives that's gripping them. Something is, in fact, holding them hostage because the moment that the judge dies, something that's at work in them compels them to go right back to what they were doing before that judge emerged. If we jump all the way into the New Testament, we get a clear understanding as to what this sinister reality is that we see on display in the book of Judges. We see what drives the people back into this forever repeating cycle, so to speak. In Romans chapter 7, Paul, the author, describes it as the law of sin that's at work in you. And it's powerful, and it's all-encompassing. It's the very reason why a young woman, even though she is told she is amazing and beautiful, it's why she can't escape the critical thoughts regarding her appearance as she looks at herself in the mirror. It's the very reason why, even though kids are told over and over and over again to share what they have, it's why they can't help themselves from ripping the toys out of the hands of their friends if they take something that they don't want them to have. It's the very reason why husbands, even though he hates the reality, but it's why they relentlessly look for ways to assert himself over others in their life, whether it be his wife, his children, his colleagues, by belittling them or through anger and rage. It's the reason why an adult can easily slip into gossip, even though they would teach and try to instruct their children that gossip is not a good thing to do. It's the reason why, and you could go on on an endless list describing all the things that we do and we're unsure of why we do these things even we know that they're wrong. This is the law of sin that holds us hostage to ourselves that we see on display in the book of Judges that we see in people's lives. Now here's the good news. God has done something to break this cycle. Yes, in the book of Judges, where he in fact raises up a judge, but he has done something far more significant now in human history than what we see in this particular book. God in fact has raised up a judge. And the judge that he has raised up is far better than any earthly judge. This particular judge, he does come to our rescue. He doesn't wait for us to cry out, which Israel did in the Old Testament. This particular judge offers salvation freely to everyone who asks for it. It's far better than just the salvation that's offered to Israel. And the judge that God has raised up is someone who will never die. Because God, in fact, has already raised him from the dead. 
which means that this sinister work that's at work in our lives, this thing that I'm a slave to, this thing that controls me, this thing that compels me to act in ways that I don't want to, God has done something to break that power in my life. And this judge's name is the name Jesus. God, out of love for you and I in this world, while we were still sinners, God sent his son into the world. And if we would fix our eyes on the work and person of Jesus Christ, we will be just fine. My question for you this afternoon, and this kind of brings us into this first activity for you to do here and for you listening online. My question is, will you fix your eyes on Jesus Christ? Will you ask him for help through the Holy Spirit that he gives to us as a follower of Jesus Christ? Will we remain focused on him? What I would love for you to do here in the next few minutes while Dana plays quietly and while you are at home, I would love for you to think through, have I fixed my eyes on Jesus Christ? Regardless of where you are in this moment of life, regardless of the struggle that you're in, regardless of all of the news that you're working through, regardless of the severe ups and downs of COVID and all the frustrating realities that is created for every single one of us, do we fix our eye on this particular judge that God has raised from the dead? I would invite you just to pray quietly where you are. That you would kind of recenter yourself. That a fixation of the greatest kind would settle over your life. That you would keep your eyes on him. I'll give you a few moments and then I'll close in prayer together. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the great judge that you have sent into this world, supremely better than an earthly judge. Jesus Christ, this perfect judge, lived perfectly, died gruesomely, buried quietly, raised absolutely victoriously. You appeared to your earliest followers then and some 500 other people a few days later. And for the last 2,000 years, there have been people who have come to know you and walk with you where they have experienced life in all of its forms because of you. We are told time and time and again as a people to fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, and we certainly want to be a people who fix our eyes on you. That we look to you, that we meditate on 
who you are and what you've done, that we celebrate and give thanks daily, if not hourly, for the incredible gift of salvation that you have freely offered to all. That when we find ourselves drifting away from you in focus is often where that anger can kind of reemerge again, where the spirit of grumbling and complaining often shows itself. That spirit of how awful everything is around me and how awful everybody else, like all of that stuff often is a sign or an expression or a symptom of us, the follower of Christ, taking our eyes off you. God, for those in this room and for listening at home, whether it be now or later today, it is my prayer collectively that we would fix our eyes on you, the one who has broken this sinister cycle of the law of sin that's at work in us. And if we would but fix our eyes on you, we will be just fine. And we will experience a beautiful parts of life we will experience aspects of freedom that no rule, no law, no individuality could ever come close to this side. That we would experience forgiveness and dead things in our life coming back to life. We get to experience all that you came to bring and all that you offer. May we be a people who fix our eyes on the greatest judge ever the one who has broken the power of sin and death, and you offer it freely to everyone. In your beautiful name we pray. Amen. This second devotional thought is more of a cautionary tale. It's right there in Judges chapter 2, verse 10, and we'll put the text up on the screen and you can read along with me. It reads, After the whole generation had gathered had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who, need, who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. This is one of the few verses that if you know the book of Judges at all, this is one of the concepts that's communicated through the book of Judges in its early chapters. For those individuals that have worked through the book of Judges, you've probably been asked to memorize this or you've stumbled across it somewhere in a study somewhere, but it's a it's an idea, it's a concept, it's a reality that comes forward early in this particular book. And it's a kind of statement that begs the question, well, how did this happen? When you know what God did for Israel at this point in its life, how is it possible that a whole generation grew up and they knew nothing of the incredible things that God did for the nation of Israel and for the glory of his name as he brought them out of Egypt and part of the Red Sea and kept them alive for 40 years in the desert through water and quail and manna, how he conquered great and mighty cities. How is it that a whole group of people can grow up and not know the Lord or what he had done for the people of Israel? Well, the answer is incredibly simple, but it is also incredibly difficult to hear. It's easy for me as a parent. It's easy for you as a parent. It's easy for you as a grandparent. To get so involved in other things, and these other things are often good and wonderful things, 
We get so involved just being busy doing life that the most important thing gets, gets placed on the back burner. And along with our children, we just all kind of walk away from it all. And here's the really bad news. Israel was told by God himself that this would happen. He told them that this is going to unfold in their life. He told them that they're just going to get busy living in the land, and when they get busy living in the land, they will forget the one who made it all possible. He told them that when they build fine houses, and when those houses increase in value, when your gold and when your crops increase, and when you eat and when you are satisfied, when you get busy just living life, you will forget the Lord your God, and everyone in this moment will lose. So devotional two is kind of this cautionary word to you, to me, to those listening online. And the cautionary word is this, and it's on the screen. Be careful. Be careful that your busyness in life, doing good things that costs us little, doesn't end up costing your kids everything. Be careful that the busyness in your life doing good things that cost us very little doesn't end up costing your kids everything. I'll give an example of what I mean by this statement. What does it matter, and I'm speaking to me as a dad, what does it matter if I pay the $100 fee for my children to go to a volleyball camp and I drive them to and fro, I spend hours of my life dedicating to coaching them in this wonderful sport, getting them to learn something that I love that at the end of the day costs me very little. Like, in, in not in a flippant, I have so much money I don't know what to do with, like, what's $100 for a 12-week camp driving them to, what does that cost me at the end of it all? What does it matter if I'm all in on this stuff and a host of other good things being super busy, and at the end of it all, my kids know nothing of Jesus? And it will cost them everything in life. Jesus speaks to this person in the New Testament. He says, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and lose their soul? In the book of Judges, Israel just gets busy living. They gained the whole world. And when that group died, their kids lost everything. No relationship with the living God at all. Now, if I may, I want to unpack, dig a little bit deeper into why this actually happens, and it's quite sinister. If I'm going to be a teacher of who God is, if I'm going to be the one that shapes them, if I'm going to be the one that points them to the living God, number one, I must know this stuff. I must know this stuff. And that comes at a personal cost that I'm going to choose to learn and grow in A, B, C, D, E, whatever it is. I am going to give up something so that I would grow and learn in this other thing about who God is and what he's doing in this world. Number two, when I grow and know this stuff, I have to then live it out, which again, there's a personal cost to this. To be a follower of Jesus Christ there's a personal cost to learning about who he is and what he's asked of me in my life. 
And there's another personal cost as I live this out in my life. Which then for me as a dad, if I teach them the stuff that I know, if I teach them the stuff that I'm living out, I am in a weird and wonderful way I am teaching them things that is, in fact, inviting hardship into my children's life. And this is the sinister aspect to this. What mother, what father, what grandparent wants to do the work of teaching their children something that is going to invite hardship into their life a little bit later? Well, I know very few that want to do that. So we remove ourselves from learning about who God is. We remove ourselves from learning about the way of life that Christ has instructed us in, which frees me from the burden of passing on the wonderful news about what real life looks like. And when I die, my kids lose everything. Israel, those parents and grandparents, they didn't bother teaching their children these things because they were just too busy living. They didn't bother to teach their kids about the instruction that God gave them about marriage. It's easier just to say, go pick whoever you want. Go pick one of the beautiful Canaanite women. Go pick one of the handsome Canaanite men. It's easier for them just to allow them to pick whatever God they wanted to worship. So they did. They went and worshipped Baal and Asherah poles and a whole bunch of other things. It's easier for the parent to just let their kids do and figure it all out on their own. Israel didn't teach them what God asked them to learn about because they were just too busy living. And it cost their kids everything. And this has huge parallels to our day here in the 21st century, which is really the premise of our next devotional. But before we get there, I've invited Pastor Dana to read. He's going to read from the book of Judges, chapter 2 and 3, and chapter 2 and 22. And I want you to listen to the words of God over the people as they have begun to walk away from who and what he has asked them to be. The angel of the Lord said to the Israelites, I will no longer drive out the people living in your land. They will be thorns in your side, and their gods will be a constant temptation to you. And the Lord said, I will no longer drive out the nations that Joshua left unconquered when he died. I did this to test Israel, to see whether or not they would follow the ways of the Lord as their ancestors did. This third devotional thought really kind of grounded in that language of the testing. Dana just read it a moment ago, but in Judges chapter 2, 22, it says, I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it. I will use them. I want to take a moment and describe them for you here and for you listening online. The them in this passage are the other people now living in the land. The them are the other ideas that are present in the land or other ways of life, other gods, and the list could go on. God is saying, I will use them, I will use all of these things to see if you're going to keep the way of the Lord and walk in it. 
for the Israelites, God was going to use the other peoples now who were living in the land. He was going to use them to test his people, to find out whether or not they will walk in obedience or whether they're going to worship and bow down to other gods. He was going to use them to test them and find out if they're going to walk in obedience or were they going to intermarry with them. He was going to use them and test them to find out whether or not they would walk in obedience or were they going to remain a separate people, a holy people for the glory of God. Were they going to raise their children in the ways of God? This was the testing. This was very much kind of grounded in what went wrong in the last devotional. If you read through it well, it didn't go so well for them because they failed at all of these particular moments, these tests. But to you and I here in this room and listening online, there is a significant parallel. We as a church family, hundreds of children and teenagers are involved. I was curious this past week, some of your families, if you haven't already received it, you should be getting it this week, but we identified 71 different families that have children just in elementary down to kind of zero. 176 children were represented in this particular group, and this is just in Cornwall, not Montague or Stratford. That number grows even larger when you throw in our other sites and you start throwing in families like ours that have only one child in elementary and three up in junior high and high school. And the question that we will wrestle through as a church family because of the amount of children that we have is, are we going to raise our children in the way of Christ? Will we be obedient to what God is inviting us into, or will we walk away from what God has asked us to do? This, in many ways, has been the ongoing test for Christ followers since Christ himself. Are we, as mom and dad or as a grandparent, are we going to teach our children about Jesus Christ and his way of life? And I want to be very pointed with you. Are we, as parents, are we going to teach our children about how we pray in the way that Christ has instructed us to pray? Are we going to teach our children around sexuality according to God's good and wonderful design? And given the latest bill that just passed in the House of Commons, it's going to be interesting to see how this gets played out and who holds the line, so to speak. Do we teach our children about money and treasure and how we're to give it away and that it's better to give than it is to receive, that we're to decide in our heart and give that money away? It's the very remedy for greed and how we finance the incredible work of the gospel. Are we going to teach our children about marriage? And this gets incredibly amazing in the context and culture in which we live. Are you going to teach your sons that their body is not their own, that it belongs to their now wife, that he is to serve her as Christ loved the church, that he is to submit to her as we would submit ourselves to Jesus Christ, wives, that your body is not your own, that it belongs to your husband in the same manner that his body belongs to you. That you're to submit to him as you do to Christ, that you're to serve him in the needs that he has. Are we going to teach about violence and revenge in the context in which we live? Either we're going to instruct them in the way of Christ or we're going to let them learn what the world says because quite frankly, that's just easier. It's just easier. 
Are we going to teach them about creation and who is the author and maker of all things? And this one will sting a little bit. Are we going to teach them on what submission means? Are we going to get them to understand who, in fact, has placed the governing authorities over us? If we're going to teach our kids about Christ and his way, it's going to cost you something. And you are guaranteeing that you're inviting hardship into your children. Trust me, when our kids begin to express the ideas as to where the world came from, that invites hardship into their life. Trust me, when they go into the classroom and they begin talking to their friends about sexuality, that invites hardship into their life. But I also know that it's where real life is found. It's where joy is found. It's where contentment is found. Parents and grandparents, don't run away from the world that's all around you. God, out of love, he is testing me, he's testing you, he's testing us to find out whether we will walk in the way of the Lord. We want to lean into it for our life's sake. There's a line in Judges chapter 3, verse 9. It's a little bit outside of the reading window that we've asked you to read for this week, but I want to read it for you here this afternoon. It reads this. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. That's 2.18. And then 3.9. When they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer. In our first devotional, we talked about a particular cycle that you see all the way through the book of Judges. And I want to highlight for you my favorite part of the cycle that we see in this particular book. And it's right here. Yes, there's this moment where Israel disobeys. There's this space where God judges. There's this space where Israel cries out. But I love the fact that every single time, God's mercy is on full display and that he sends for them a deliverer every time they cry out for help. Salvation comes. I love this moment. I love the moment where God just continually pours out his grace on mercy whenever they cried out. And when you get into the story and the details as to what Israel, in fact, was doing at the moment that they began to cry out, God had every right to leave them where they were. God had every right to destroy them as a people. God had every right to just ruin them. But he doesn't. God, because of his grace, because of the mercy, because of who he is, he saves them. We see this cycle time and time and time again in the nation of Israel's life. And if we jump up to our life even now, this is still true. God still, in our failures, God's grace abounds. Our lives are marked with failure. And yet God's grace and mercy is offered. God's grace and mercy continues to define it. This is true of parents. There are many moments where we will do our very best work at pointing and teaching and instructing our kids and we would get it wrong time and time and time again. And yet I understand, and it defines my life, it speaks over the whole reality of my whole home, 
this space of God's grace and mercy being poured out over and over and over again. For people who are trying to figure out this dynamic and where we live and we can allow our hearts to go into spaces of anger and rage and frustration as we try to respond to all of the realities of COVID-19. And there's been moments in my life, and I suspect in some of your lives, where this space of just outright rage would show up and we would say and do things in a way that we would not normally do. God's grace and mercy abounds. Some of us with our finances, we just make poor choices. And we give into this and we give into that, and God's grace and mercy abounds. For others, it's our, it's our background connected to our sexual habits and practices. And we know that there's brokenness upon brokenness upon brokenness woven into that, and yet God's grace and mercy abounds. Whenever we turn, whenever we have this desire to fix our life, whenever we have this desire that I have no idea what it is that I'm doing and where I'm going and who's guiding and who's shaping, when we make that turn towards God, he will rescue, he will forgive, he will restore. One of the early verses that I memorized as a kid in my program called Junior Astronauts, I have no idea why it was called that, had nothing to do with space. It was just a Wednesday night group. But one of the verses was First John that reads, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, this whole concept of confess, it's counter to our world in which we live because no one wants to own their own mistakes. We blame others. We kind of push it on to a circumstance or a situation. But if we confess, if we own our mistake, if we say, I have done this and I am sorry, I'm wrong for, I've made this mistake, it's not because I'm tired, it's not because I ate the bad food, it's not because, it's, not, it's just I did this and I am wrong and I am sorry. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I love through the story of Judges more than anything. There's some crazy gory details. There's some awful moments of just brokenness and just everywhere. And yet every time Israel cries out for help, God's mercy is present. It defines their life and it continues to define the lives of men and women and children who love Jesus Christ. This moment of I have done something that I know is not right Will you forgive me? Will you set my feet back up on the right way? And the answer is always yes. Out of his great mercy and love, he restores and he forgives. Would you pray with me this afternoon? Our gracious and heavenly Father, my life, our lives, at times is very much like this cycle that we see through the book of Judges. where we will forget and we will kind of move on with just being busy living. We can find ourselves in spaces that we didn't see coming, that we didn't want to end up here. And we are told time and time and time again, if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just and he will forgive us from all unrighteousness. May we be a people that our whole entire life is just defined by 
grace and mercy being on the receiving end, but also as someone that understands how to practice that towards others, whether it be their spouse or their children or their workmates or whatever the case might be. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are incredibly grateful for who you are, for what you've done. May you shape our lives each and every day. In your name we pray.